0: We have to have taxes if we have government, obviously. So I'm not an anarchist. I do believe in in a certain level of government and we have to have taxation to do that.
1: We have the responsibility because we are unavoidably members of a community whose representatives have, uh, for better or worse, agreed to laws that govern the economy and the market. There's no less responsibility to
2: pay taxes than there is to follow any law. We have to shift to a public money framework. And if you really want to get at that hoarding instinct, you have to engage in an even broader project that reconceptualizes the relationship between money and society, and thus the social contract between um, governments and, and people living in the society.
3: Part of the social contract which says, you know, I will pay my taxes, does assume that they are somewhat legitimate.
4: Welcome back to Breached, a podcast on the American social contract. I'm Jyoti Jasrasaria. and I'm Helena Swanson Nystrom. Thanks to all of you who have been listening for the past four months. If you're just joining us, we encourage you to listen to our short trailer, Introducing Breached, to get a better sense of our project.
5: We started our series with a conversation about who belongs in the social contract and how to define its boundaries. We then explored five substantive areas of the social contract that have never been expressly codified in the U.S. Constitution safety, health, education, employment, and housing. Now we're transitioning into our final three episodes about how to sustain the social contract. Today we're focusing on how to pay for it, in particular through taxes.
4: The debate around taxes was at the center of American government even before that government existed. James Otis, a Massachusetts political activist, gets credit for one of the rallying cries of the American Revolution. Taxation without representation is tyranny. In fact, as we learned in our elementary school history classes, America's fight for independence was motivated in large part by a rebellion against paying taxes to a faraway king.
5: For over 100 years after independence, the U.S. federal government played a limited role in taxation, only taxing imported goods and the production of whiskey and glass windows. Even state and local governments, which collected poll taxes on voters and property taxes on land and commercial buildings, didn't levy many of the taxes that we take for granted today and an income tax wasn't permanently legalized until the 16th Amendment was ratified in 1913.
4: Sometime around the early 1900s, perceptions around the value of taxation clearly began to change. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who served as a U.S. Supreme Court justice from 1902 to 1932, had a long-held belief that taxes are what we pay for a civilized society. This phrase, which he used multiple times over the course of his tenure on the Supreme Court, is now inscribed above the entrance to the IRS headquarters in Washington, D.C.
5: The history of the early United States tells us at least one thing. Taxes are inherently linked to the role that our government plays, which is in turn linked to the way society functions. Taxes determine what the government owes people and defines the scope of the government's role in facilitating what people owe each other.
4: We reached out to Mark Meckler, co-founder of the Tea Party Patriots and current president of Citizens for Self-Governance, to understand his perspective on how taxes and the social contract interact. It was clear from the beginning that for him, taxes were only part of the bigger problem that he was trying to address.
0: I believe that one of the fundamental problems we have in America today is too many decisions are made in Washington, D.C. When you do that, it is by its very nature polarizing. The reason I say that was we all know we live in a divided country from a political perspective and an ideological perspective. And by the way, this is nothing new. That was the case back at the founding in 1787 when they negotiated the original Constitution, 1789 when it was ratified. The 13 colonies, ultimately the 13 states, were very different places, culturally. And so there was a recognition that the federal government had to play a very limited role uh, in protecting constitutional rights. That was its fundamental obligation. And then to let the people in the states go about and do things their own way uh, within those structures. And today, with so many decisions being made in Washington, D.C., whatever's decided is going to anger roughly half the population. If you have a Democratic administration, a liberal administration, you're going to anger the conservatives, and vice versa. And the solution to that, the solution to the polarization, is to put the decision-making back where it belongs, which is in the states in the hands of the people.
5: In fact,
4: Mark doesn't think that the federal government has much to do with the social contract at all.
0: Definitionally, something that's social requires social interactions. We have no social interactions at the national level. It's impossible. So you can't socially interact with 340 million people. I mean, social interactions take place really at the local level, and I'm a huge fan of the concept of subsidiarity, which is decisions should be made as locally as, as reasonably practicable. And so I prefer decisions made at the individual level. The individual should decide for themselves and the family level and then the city and maybe the county if you have to at the state level. And then very few decisions should be made at the national level. And when, when you run a government that way, generally speaking, people are happier with the government. People generally express a much greater satisfaction with their city government than their state government and with their state government than the federal government.
4: With that conception of the social contract, it's not surprising that for Mark, taxes too should be limited to the local and state level.
0: We have to have taxes if we have government, obviously. So I'm not an anarchist. I do believe in in a certain level of government and we have to have taxation to do that. I believe the majority of taxation should be local and state-based for the same reason. First, I trust people locally and in the states more with the money when the country was founded and for a large portion of the country's history, the spending pyramid was heavily weighted to local and state spending. Today, it's flipped upside down. Most of the spending takes place at the national level. That means a lot of money gets wasted. That means people at the local and state level feel like it's not in their control. And I think that's very unhealthy for society. So what I would proposes that most of the taxes and taxing power be taken away from the federal government except for fundamental enumerated powers things. And in fact, I even believe personally in doing away with the federal income tax and having the states remit taxes to the federal government on behalf of their citizens. That was the original plan according to the the Constitution. (laughs)
5: Our conversation with Mark emphasized the fact that a person's understanding of the social contract essentially dictates what that person expects from taxes. If that's the case, then our current system of taxation, and the way we as Americans talk about taxes, must say something about the social contract that we subscribe to. To figure out society's general views on taxation, we
4: didn't have to look any further than the tax reforms that went through at the end of last year.
2: My colleagues... This is a day I've been looking forward to for a long time. We are about to achieve some really big things. Things that the cynics have scoffed at for years, decades even. Ideas that have been worked on for so long to help hardworking Americans who have been left behind for too long. Today, today we are giving the people of this country their money back.
3: This is their money after all.
4: That was Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, giving remarks on the House floor just before the vote on the tax plan. His impassioned rhetoric underscored the belief, one that many Americans share across the political spectrum, that taxpayer money is just that, money that rightfully belongs
5: to the people who are paying taxes. To explore that concept and its implications further, we reached out to Raul Carrillo and Danny Sufransky, leaders of the Modern Money Network.
2: The term taxpayer money is, is, is very normative. It's very ideological. Uh, there's nothing neutral or objective about it, although I think people often treat it that way. It's, it's very important to understand both, A, how reactionary the term taxpayer money is, and, B, how much it's polluted, how Americans and people around the world really think about their relationships with their governments. Overall, I'd say the broad acceptance of the term taxpayer money as something objective, reinforces the idea that money is generated by taxpayers and inherently also the idea that the state depends on the charity of people who pay more taxes or at least face higher marginal rates in order to spend money for people. So repeating and repeating that the government should be responsible first and foremost to taxpayers really suggests that we have shares in our government essentially, which are keyed to our supposed contributions in revenue. Uh, we find that Fairly anti-democratic, it corporatizes the idea of government and supports a very narrow, very shallow vision of not only citizenship, but humanity, really. The term public money fits the demand for public accountability far better than the term taxpayer money does. In a new social contract um, we all are searching for, I'd suggest that the term public money should replace the term because it really belongs to all of us.
5: That was Raul. For him, this taxpayer money narrative has profound effects on the way that we view each other as people living in a shared community.
2: A lot of people in this country, um, of course, Trump supporters, but I'd say also a lot of moderates and liberals really think that the government is taking hard-earned money out of their pockets and then redistributing it to, you know, their vision or what they imagine to be poor, lazy, mostly black and brown folks, especially women. This is obviously a contemptible narrative, I think, and there are plenty of conventional retorts available that progressives like to use. You know, we say, actually, white women are the biggest beneficiaries of welfare, that sort of thing. But we argue these retorts don't really cut deeply enough. This entire story of confiscation and redistribution doesn't reflect how the spending process actually works. So these conclusions that are used to hurt women and people of color and immigrants Um, that are attached to this whole story are are actually inherently wrong. On a a very foundational level, social justice advocates, especially lawyers, I think need need to ditch conventional notions of false scarcity and of the tax and transfer model in order to fight these terrible visions of society at their roots.
5: Raul and Danny are working to shift how we talk about the relationship between money and government. In their view, Congress controls federal money, and it can spend money irrespective of how much the federal government collects in taxes. That being said, they don't argue with the fact that paying taxes is important. It's just that their reasoning is different. Danny shared some of that reasoning with us during our conversation.
1: It's important to be specific about why we have this responsibility. So familiar ideas like taxes are the price you pay for civilization are still very important from our perspective. But... Um, We go a bit deeper than conventional theories and say, you know, yes, taxes are important for many civic reasons, but they're not necessary for fiscal revenue. Um, The federal government needs to collect taxes, but it doesn't need to collect our taxes in order to spend more money in the way people often say it does. We need to sever that conceptual link and focus on the other things that taxes do. Uh, Former New York Fed Chair uh, Beardsley Rommel gave a great brief speech to the American Bar Association in 1945, in which he outlined the function of taxes in a country where taxes aren't needed for revenue. And he argued that taxes give the dollar value and help the government manage that value, specifically by acting as a curb on inflation, which is an actual problem the government might face as opposed to bankruptcy, which is a fake problem for the federal government. But most of all, taxes are important for managing the distribution of money in society. They allow the government to make claims and allocate claims on real resources. taxation on the rich, for example, is important so that we don't live in an oligarchy, not because we need the rich people's money to pay for government programs. But this is all very different from saying we have responsibility to pay for programs. We have the responsibility because we are unavoidably members of a community whose representatives have, uh, for better or worse, agreed to laws that govern the economy and the market. There's no less responsibility to pay taxes than there is to follow any law.
5: Ultimately, Raul emphasized that our public money framework absolutely has to change if we want to re-envision an American social contract.
2: Public money should go to those who are benefiting the least from the legally constructed economic and monetary framework. More specifically, we'd argue that public money should especially go to those who face monetary obligations imposed by the government but lack the means to meet them. Public money should flow into jobs, healthcare, housing, schooling for everyone who's been roped into the economic order, and the broader social contract, if you will, around money. And we shouldn't limit the benefits that people receive to try to balance the budget or to target an arbitrary deficit level or debt to GDP ratios. We certainly couldn't be, you know, paying people's benefits or even their rights to how much they pay in taxes. You know, the liberals and progressives' continued acceptance of some relationship between what you get and what you offer in revenue has led to this world where millionaires and billionaires can go on TV with a straight face and say that if you don't pay taxes, you know, you shouldn't have the right to vote. We, we want to get out of this entire framework and this way of thinking. It's, again, this idea that the government is picking people's pockets to give to other people who, you know, the taxpayers might consider to be undeserving. We have to shift to a public money framework. And if you really want to get at that hoarding instinct, you have to engage with an even broader project that reconceptualizes the relationship between money and society, and thus the social contract between um, governments and, and people living in the society.
4: Conversations with Mark, Raul, and Danny present two different perspectives on what we should expect from government. But even if we take the simple view that we pay taxes in order to receive benefits as part of the social contract, that give and take still needs to be fundamentally fair. To explore that, we wanted to
5: revisit the comments that Michelle Oberholzer made on our last episode about property taxes. Michelle works in tax foreclosure prevention in Detroit, and we asked her to describe how the city's property tax system works.
3: Michigan is really unique in how radical our state law is. Our law says that if you're behind on your taxes by three years, then the government can foreclose or must foreclose, really. And um, they do that through an online auction where they sell the real property. So this is not selling the debt, which is done in other states. This is selling the debt and the dirt. And um, ownership is, is lost this way. 18% Eighteen percent interest is mandatory for the government to add on top of taxes once they're delinquent, so it can be like quicksand where you get behind you stay behind
4: Michelle pointed out the ways in which the underlying property assessments were unfair.
3: What are property taxes for they're they're paying for city services it's kind of like a utility bill that you get for owning space on that land, and you never you never don't own it and so The taxes themselves are based on a property assessment, and one of the ways that our taxes are not fair is that the property assessment was actually unconstitutionally assessed for many years in Detroit, and that has to do with the very rational reaction that the city had to the declining property values is that they didn't or couldn't lower the values to the actual amount. properties were over-assessed and then over-taxed accordingly, and then the people were getting these bills that they may not have paid, but again, it was based on something that was false to begin with. In, in addition to that, they may not have even been receiving the city services that those taxes were ostensibly for, and so it becomes a really vicious cycle, of course, where you know the city doesn't have money, and so it's even more desperate, and it takes that desperation out on its own residents and um, you can't draw blood from a stone, and we have, again, created these vindictive policies which are legal because they are the law, but the unfairness is that it punishes even those people who do pay their taxes and that most most fundamentally we are executing a law, a punishment on the basis of a false crime. It's true you didn't pay your taxes, but the taxes themselves were not based on fact and so at what point is it fair to follow through with that punishment
5: one of the things that michelle highlighted for us was the fact that there are some situations in which we're willing to build contingency plans into the law but we haven't extended those same exceptions to accommodate instances when americans are unable to pay their taxes
3: we have really been moving toward a system where government is a business or we we run our government like a business we declare a state of emergency when we have not balanced our books but it would and and we subvert the law of you know democratically elected leadership because there's an emergency here but we didn't do the same thing when there was a humanitarian crisis we didn't say yes yes I know that the law says that you have to foreclose after three years but if we do this we will hurt the person the home the neighborhood the city at large now and on an ongoing basis. This will be a permanent harm. And we should declare a state of emergency which says that we should suspend the normal state of the law because this is such a, a massive crisis. We literally have 60,000 properties getting foreclosure notices in 2014. This is wrong. You know, we never declared an emergency for that or for water shutoffs that were tens of thousands of homes. And so again, we were carrying out the law which was not, I don't think, ever intended for something of the scale. We've gotten to the point where to implement it is to injure ourselves and to cause mutual
4: destruction. Even though we often think of the tax burden as falling most heavily on those who have the most money, it's clear that even when the absolute amounts are lower for lower-income people, the felt burden and the consequences of not paying are often greater
3: for Detroiters, you know, if you're really poor, really low income, then proportionately you have much less, you know, if if you spend 10% of your income on taxes, that is, you're just left with so much less than other people. If you have a higher income, it's not really based on a percentage. So it's just really expensive to be poor in Detroit. and, And the consequences for not paying are so severe. I mean, I don't think that There's anyone who would willingly shirk a tax bill when it meant losing their homes. The people who lose their homes due to unpaid taxes probably couldn't pay that bill, you know, or they would never have taken a a risk and a gamble to lose their home, um, especially when it's so difficult to purchase a quality home at an affordable price
5: these days. People only buy into a social contract if they think it's fair ultimately if we're using taxes to pay for the social contract those taxes need to adhere to the same principles of fairness
3: just imagine you know instead of the city improperly assessing properties having debts to meet and and over assessing people or foreclosing on people because it is a law i would ideally like to see a system where the city could adjust the taxes properly assess correctly, allow for the exemptions that are available to people, and then from that point forward, fully enforce the punitive law that we have if they so choose. But to continue to foreclose on people when that stuff wasn't done correctly retroactively is wrong. So part of the social contract which says, you know, I will pay my taxes, does assume that they are somewhat legitimate.
4: love to hear your thoughts on how our understanding of taxes shapes the social contract as always we've included some sources on our website if you're interested in reading more about this issue or learning more about our guests and please stay tuned for our next episode on
5: june 6th in which we'll explore how to uphold the social contract through service thanks to our producer marie valindo and to annie swanson nystrom for our artwork the music you heard on this podcast is lullaby for democracy and go tell it on the molehill by dr turtle
4: We hope you'll check us out at breachedpodcast.org, follow us on Twitter at Breached Podcast, and subscribe to Breached on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback or ideas that you'd like to share with us, feel free to send us an email at breachedpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a message at 617-528-0708. And if you like what you've heard so far, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate the feedback that we've received so far.
5: I'm Helena Swanson Nystrom, and I'm Jyothi Dasrasarya, and this is Breached.